Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. And uh, we're going to read this. Uh, Our great friend Matt Murphy preached last week. It was brilliant. Give Matt a hand. I know he's watching online. He's out of town. But uh, so good. And so, uh, and we'll have him back up here very soon to preach again. But uh, we've been talking about this brilliant, amazing, life-giving invitation from Jesus. Uh, We're reading this in the message translation. This is how it goes. Are you tired? You worn out? burned out on religion, come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life and I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace and I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Does that sound good to anybody else besides just me? Yeah. 1982 was a good year. Uh, 1982, uh, the, the world gave us something that was quite brilliant, and, and that was a video game called Pitfall. And Pitfall, we have a slide to show you kind of what the game looks like. Look at these graphics, it's like real life. Uh, this is like looking at Indiana Jones right now in the theater. This is um, Pitfall. And uh, this was a couple years before we had the Nintendo Entertainment Center, so our system. This was on the Atari 2600, which my family had, and uh, I've got great memories of my whole family playing Donkey Kong and Pac-Man on this thing. The Atari 2600 was like a giant piece of furniture. It, was, it had wood paneling. It was like a station wagon. It had cartridges. And then your joystick, you were tethered by an actual cord back then, and your joystick, you, you had uh, one joystick and a red button. Anyone could play. And uh, this was a game, the Pitfall game was a game that came out in 1982 for that video game console. I did not have this game, but my cousin did. And uh, I remember distinctly uh, playing this game with my cousin for like hours. And, uh, and so we had a conversation while we're playing this, uh, how do you win? How do you win this game? How do you beat this game? Now, uh, Pac-Man had stages. Donkey Kong had stages. You would beat a stage and move on to the next one. So there's a little bit of fulfillment in that. This game, you had these screens, an infinite number of them, with all these different obstacles. You had scorpions and, and cobras and alligators and all kinds of things, and you would swing over them, jump over them. There was rolling barrels, all kinds of stuff. You'd run, run right or run left, and it'd just be another screen with different obstacles, and it never changed. And so our conversation, I remember playing it in his basement, was how do you win? How do you beat this game? So we came up with a theory, and I, 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 we thought we were right. You pick, a, you pick a direction, either right or left, and you just go until you reach the last screen. So you just go till it ends. And this was not a multiplayer game. This was uh, one player. You play. You take. You take turns. So uh, he would go, and he chose left, and he would just go as long as he could until our patience ran out. And he's like, "It's not left." So it was my turn, and so I went right, and I went as far as I could right. And uh, guess what? to no avail. And that was one of the last days that uh, I can remember ever playing this stupid game. 
because it was pointless, it was a waste of time, and it stole from me hours of my young childhood. And, uh, and I resent it, and I just wanted to tell you guys that so you can pray for me that God would restore those hours back. Anyway, uh, no, it, it, I, I didn't play it anymore after this because what's the point? Uh, I, the, 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 reaching the goal wasn't worth the time and the commitment and the effort. And so it, it wasn't until years and years later that I, I heard, I read, or I saw a video or something where they talked about this game and they said, you know how you win this game? And I was like, how? You collect the treasure. There's treasure in the game. There's like gold bars and money bags and stuff like that. And... Uh, this is, this is how you beat the game. There's a time, a certain time you collect all the treasure, you win. Now, looking back, that's treasure, all that stuff that's treasure, that's bling, that kind of shines bright like a diamond, and uh, all, that, all the stuff that you see, I ran right past. I probably jumped over it. I, I was in my way. The goal that is actually part of the game wasn't the goal that I had, and therefore, I missed it. Now, why in the world am I talking about this ridiculous game from 1982? Well, human beings are extremely goal-oriented. We, we just are. It's sort of in our wiring. And, uh, and we, we set goals. We have goals. We have big goals. We have small goals. Uh, we, 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 we set these goals all the time. And they are what drive us. They are what get us out of bed in the morning. They are, they're things that, these goals are things that make us work harder. And uh, some goals cause us to sacrifice. And uh, so whether your goals, uh, get, getting an education, getting your master's, it's a sacrifice of time and effort and money. And, and it, it, these goals drive us. They push us. Hopefully they create in us um, good qualities. Uh, it's in achieving goals and reaching for goals that we develop patience, perseverance, uh, that we learn how to, uh, to deal with the inevitable disappointment and failure that we're going to face. So we are goal-oriented people, and, and we believe deep down, and, and no one really explains this to us. This is just kind of innate in us. We, we, we have a belief that it is in reaching goals and achieving goals where we find fulfillment, happiness, meaning, purpose in our lives, that our life has meaning. Uh, it's in reaching goals and achieving goals and pursuing goals that we sort of define ourselves. We find our identity in this pursuit. Uh, it, the, the big picture for us, the thing that we're after, starts to become part of who we are. It's how we explain and define ourselves. And so these goals are, 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 are strong in our hearts and our lives. Um, but here's the reality. Like in the case of pitfall, uh, a lot of times we had a goal and we went after it. And we gave time and energy and even treasure to this thing. And we got there. We reached it. We checked the box. And we realized that ain't it. That, that wasn't the goal. I don't know the, the stat. I haven't looked at it recently, but uh, it, years ago it was, it, was, it was staggering how many 
how many people change their major and how often they change their major in college, it's through the, it's through the roof because we're all just sort of trying and, and failing and testing the water. And, and a lot of folks I've met had a, had a goal, had, a, had, a, had a, a picture of what they wanted to do career-wise. Uh, I have a, a friend of mine right now who had a goal, uh, just this idea, this dream sequence in his head about a career that was going to finally bring fulfillment to his life, and he lasted exactly one week and hated it. And then you kind of go back to the drawing board. Uh, now, our, our faith, our life of faith, our pursuit of God, our Christianity is no different. It's, there's also a huge component of being goal-oriented in our, our faith journey. We just are. In fact, Philippians 3, there's this beautiful statement, uh, verses 13 and 14. This is the Apostle Paul. And he says it this way. One thing I do, the one thing that I do is this. I forget what lies behind me. Uh, I forget the past. I leave my behind in the past. And straining forward to do what lies ahead. And, and that is, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's a goal-oriented life. And he's saying it's an upward, it's an upward goal. It's a goal that is uh, towards Christ. It is something that lifts us up. But, unfortunately, uh, I experienced something very similar in my, in my, my gameplay of pitfall. I experienced in my own personal faith journey that uh, I grew up in church. I've never not been in church. I've been in multiple denominations and experiences and styles and methodologies. I've been in ministry for more than half my life. I've been around church and in church and, and working for church and behind the scenes at church my entire life. And uh, I, can, I can remember a huge chunk of that life, a huge chunk of that time, more than the time I wasted playing pitfall, that I wasted pursuing the wrong goal as it relates to my faith journey. I had the goal entirely wrong, and I ran the opposite direction, running right past the actual treasure that I was meant to be fixated and focused on. And what that looked like for me, in a word, was religion. Religion was the goal that I was ingrained with, that I just caught through osmosis or teaching or whatever it was, I just picked up on what you're supposed to fixate on, the, the way you win this thing, the way that you achieve, the goal is, and as far as Christianity is concerned, is you upgrade you. So it's advancement, it's enlightenment, it's, it's personal in moral growth and achievement. It's accumulating a high score personally. So becoming a greater version of yourself, one that people would admire and want to emulate. And even in church, functionally, you move your way up the ladder and you become a greater and greater influencer. And you get titles and people slap the word pastor on my front name. And, and front name, what is that? I don't even know what that is. What's your front name? <laughs> uh, this, this is, you want a title. You want respect. You want to reach a place where you can wear the, the J.C. Penney suit. 
and stand in front of people with a microphone and, and with well-coiffed hair. Well, that didn't work out for me. But anyway, count it all loss. Uh, but that's, that's kind of how it works. And truthfully, if I look back on that version of me, and it wasn't terribly long ago, I can remember quite well that, that version of me that was running that direction, trying to win life that way, that was the most self-centered, arrogant, prideful, obnoxious version of myself that I've ever been. That was a, uh, that was a Chris that was consumed with Chris. And he was selfish and prideful. In fact, I would say the most arrogant version of me was not the version of me that didn't know God. It was the, the version of me that was the most serious about God. That Chris was arrogant. And, and I don't know if you've, you've, you've seen this or noticed this or picked this up over time. Uh, a lot of church Christians, religion, feels that way. It's a very self-important group oftentimes. Uh, and so self-important that, that they have so much free time because they've arrived just to criticize and judge absolutely everybody else. And that was me, unfortunately. It was simply a, a case of having the wrong goal. It, it, the, having the wrong goal created that in me. And then my goal shifted I was made aware. That's not it. That's not what we're chasing after. That's not, that's not the pursuit. There's an upward call. There's something greater than just a life devoted to my own personal enlightenment and advancement. A life dedicated to me. Um, Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11 has two dimensions to it. It is an invitation to something, but it is an also, it's also an invitation to leave something. And he's inviting us to, and it's clear, uh, do you want rest? Do you want to experience rest? Rest for your souls. And the answer to that question should be for all of us, absolutely. But there is, um, there's a sacrifice required. There is a transition that, that needed to ha- take place He's saying, I, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you burned out? Are you overwhelmed? Are you crushed by the weight of where you've been? Then leave that. It, it, it's not, hey, I, I'll help you. I'll give you a day off in carrying the burden of that. He's saying, I'm inviting you to leave that. In fact, there's an exchange that's happening. He's saying, my yoke is easy. Yours is impossible. So the encouragement is, put yours down. Step out from under the yoke that you've been under, and then come be a part of mine. Our yoke is what's causing us to feel tired and burned out and weary and heavy laden. And in the same way that I wanted to never play pitfall again for the rest of my life because I experienced an exhausting time of just fruitlessness. Uh, I felt the same way with church and religion, to be honest with you. My wife and I said this many, many times. We, we, we moved here and started this church a decade ago, and, 
And truthfully, if we hadn't started a church, we probably wouldn't go to church. Not because of where we are today, but because of where we were then. I might have found my way back to the church, but truthfully, I was crushed by the weight of running the wrong direction and carrying the wrong yoke. It was too much. The Bible talks about a, a yoke that this world puts on us. That it's just sort of ubiquitous. It is everybody's yoke. And, and that is, as the Bible describes it, a, a yoke of slavery. And, and I think we just, of course, last week was the 4th of July, which is uh, every dog's favorite holiday. God bless them. And, uh, and so, but it was, uh, it was a celebration of our nation's independence. And, uh, and, and those things are linked. Freedom and independence are linked. And, and, and it's appropriate. And I, I, I praise God that we live in a country where this is, uh, we can do this. We're free to worship Jesus together. And may we never take this for granted because there's a lot of places in the world where this is not permitted. This is punishable by death and being arrested. And so uh, I, I do think independence is freedom in a natural sense, but in a supernatural and spiritual sense, freedom is the opposite of independence. In fact, independence is slavery. Autonomy is slavery. And that's the yoke of slavery that the Bible talks about is a yoke of uh, autonomy, independence, individualistic life, it's a life built on and built around me. Every sin, sin by definition, is this gravitational pull to be our own God. To be, as to quote Invictus, the captain of our own soul. To be at the helm. To be the one that this is about. That's slavery. And that's what Jesus is addressing. He's like, you're, you're feeling crushed, burned out, and exhausted by a life of self-importance. And, and I'm inviting you to drop that yoke and come experience the yoke of freedom that you find only in me. Uh, I mentioned uh, a great movie uh, a couple weeks ago starring John Cusack called Say Anything. In fact, i got a boombox right here. And there's a famous scene... Where, where John Cusack holds up a boombox uh, outside of Ione Skye's window, and uh, he's trying to win her back, and he plays this beautiful song. It's one of my favorite songs ever, Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes. And uh, I would like to quote, not sing, <laughs> but quote In Your Eyes to you right now. It goes like this. In fact, uh, we're going to do a little call and response. When I point to you, you guys go, in your eyes. Okay? It's practice. Oh, this is going to be fun. Uh, okay, this is how it goes. The light, the heat. I'm complete. I see the doorway to a thousand churches. The resolution of all the fruitless searching. I love that line the resolution of all my fruitless searches. Uh, Peter Gabriel was asked, I, I saw an interview with him, what, what, does this, what does this mean? What are you talking about in this? What did you write this about? He said, you know, there's two ways to define this. 
It could be a love song. And he kind of just, it's, you know, someone you love. Or it could have to do with your faith. So he himself was talking about this, this really speaks to faith. And, and I love that. The, the resolution of all the fruitless searches. That's what Jesus invites us to. Is, are you done with all the fruitless searches? Are you done trying to look around every corner, under every rock, for something that lacks the power to fulfill you anyway? The goal that you could reach still will not bring you the fulfillment, the meaning, the purpose that you crave. It's a life of fruitless and unfulfilling goal-seeking. Last week, uh, our buddy Matt Murphy, he talked about Jesus' encouragement during his Sermon on the Mount uh, to stop worrying about our lives. To, to give up on that. I mean, the birds, God feeds the birds. He's going to take care of you. He clothes the, 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 the uh, flowers in the field. He's going he's to clothe you. You're good. In verse 33 of Matthew 6, in the same context, Jesus redirects our focus instead of worrying about our lives to something else. He doesn't just say, stop doing that. He says, I, I, shift your focus off of worrying about your lives to this. He says, seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. Seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, and everything else will be taken care of. In other words, when we have the right goal, when we have the right focus, when we have the treasure in the right place, all the other goals start to fall into place. But I think we get in our minds that, that being serious about Christianity is a joyless, it, 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 it depletes you of all life and all fun and, and all, all the things that you actually enjoy. You've got to give it up. But the truth is, when you have Jesus as the focus and the central goal, it makes everything else sweeter it makes everything else more vibrant. It gives color more vibrancy. You, can, you smell more things and you taste things better. And it, just, it becomes a more enriched life because now right, life has meaning and purpose and beauty that it didn't have before. So, so seek first. It doesn't say seek only. It says seek first. And everything else will be taken care of. Everything else will fall into place if you have the right goal. I think what this world is suffering from is getting this scripture, this quote from Jesus, reversed. And I think that what's happening, and we can see this happening, is that instead of seeking first His kingdom, His righteousness, and everything else being taken care of, we're seeking all the other things. Experiencing, trying to experience fulfillment, meaning, purpose, and rightness in seeking all these other things. If I just do this, if I just do this, if I hit this target weight, if I, if I work out this many days and run this many marathons, if I, if I can buy this certain car, if I can move to this certain neighborhood, if I can just uh, upgrade my pay scale, if I can change jobs, if I can get this credential, if I can have more kids, if I can just get married, if I could just, if I could just, then I would finally feel. 
every single time, no matter how great that goal is, it comes up short. I, I know from personal experience how difficult it is to, to admit, even to myself, that my own personal pursuits come up empty every single time. No matter how imaginative and creative, no matter how glorious and, and impossible, every single time you get there and you're like, what's next? The book of Ecclesiastes is all about that. It's a, it's a depressing book of the Bible that is 100% about what if this life is just about this life? What if you take the goal of God out of it? And this is, of course, Solomon, the wisest, the wealthiest humans ever lived. What if it's just about what you see? What if it's just about goal setting and going for it and my own personal achievements and living life the way I want to live it? And, and the word comes up over and over and over. Vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. Pointless. Meaninglessness, meaninglessness. It's empty, it's vacant, it's void. It lacks the power to fulfill. Jesus' invitation is not only a, for a break from the impossible burden of this wild goose chase, it's also an invitation to a path to discover what our hearts truly crave. True purpose, fulfillment, and meaning. He's inviting us to find that. He's not saying do without. He's saying come find that in me. He tells a story. You'll find it in Matthew 13. Uh, one of his many parables. And uh, this specific parable in Matthew 13 is about someone who discovers a treasure. Speaking of treasure. They find a treasure buried in a field. Maybe they get the little uh, metal detector. Maybe they're Pitfall Harry and they're, they're, they're jumping over cobras and scorpions to, to, to discover treasure, but they found some in a field and then they wanted no loopholes. They, did want, they wanted to make sure that there was no reason for anyone to come back and repossess this treasure. There's no, there's no question whose it belongs to. So this person goes, they sell everything. All that they have, they sell, they liquidate everything just so they can buy not just the treasure, but the whole field that the treasure is in. And then that treasure becomes theirs. And there's a, uh, historically, there's a couple ways that we can interpret this parable. And uh, I'd say the two main ways would be when we start casting the characters, who's the person that found the treasure? And so a lot of people, I've heard this is probably the most common um, interpretation, is that people would say that the treasure is Jesus. Or, it, it, of course, the lead-in is the kingdom of heaven's like this. And so they would, they would assume the treasure is the kingdom of heaven. And so we sacrifice everything in order to connect with or, 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 or buy our way into the kingdom of heaven to purchase a connection with Jesus. And so um, that makes sense to some degree because, of course, Matthew 16, a couple chapters later, Jesus says, in order to follow me, you're going to have to drop everything and then take up your cross. 
And so there is a sacrifice involved in this, and, and I think that's probably accurate. But here's another perspective, um, and this is the one that I'll run with today. In this parable, the, the, the person, the man who discovered the treasure, sacrificed everything in order to purchase the treasure. And, and not just the treasure, the whole field. And the Bible's specific about that. He's after the treasure, but he purchased the whole field. 1 John 2.2 2 says that Jesus is the payment not just for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So the field is the whole world. But the treasure are those who choose to be saved, choose to be rescued. I believe both these interpretations are probably accurate to some degree. We are his treasure, and he is ours. I think both those things are true. But the price that was paid, if you just focus on that aspect of the story, the, 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 price that, the, the sacrifice that was made in order to pay the price, that's Jesus. That's only Jesus. That can only be Jesus. Because there's no way we could ever earn or deserve or, or merit or pay for or secure anything from him. So we find this treasure. We are his treasure. Either way, we are united, connected with Jesus. And we're free from the exhausting mission of running in order to reach a goal because ultimately the goal reached us. We, we're, we can retire from trying to reach the goals because the goal reached us. Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11 was to a, uh, a life of living um, from the goal instead of for it. Now that we have this treasure, which 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now that we have this treasure, now that the treasure has us, now that we are with Jesus and we have everything that we've ever hoped for and needed what do you do with that? And I'm going to end today with that, with that idea. Now what? So we reach the goal. Do we just retire? Do we hang it up? Do we sit around and just enjoy the grace of God and watch Netflix and not do anything? That sounds good. But I'll close with this. Walk with me, work with me, and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. There is a, an element of work. Walk with me, work with me. Um, there is uh, an icon of work. Jesus says, take my yoke. That yoke is not, that's not Ikea lounging furniture. This is a, an implement of work. This is an icon of labor. Jesus is saying, come work with me. Work, 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 work. What is Jesus doing that he's showing us how to do? What is the work that Jesus is saying, learn this from me? What's Jesus doing? I think so much of our life in the goal setting, even as Christians, is I want to do what I want to do, and then I'm going to ask God to bless what I'm doing. I'm going to go do this, and then I'm going to 
God, can you bless this? And the conversation never comes up. What's Jesus doing? And then can I be a part of that, actually? And then what if everything that I do complements that? What if there's a big picture that's beyond just me trying to pay the bills and make myself smile every once in a while? What, what if it's beyond that? What if it's something that's more eternal and more, more cosmic than just cutting the grass? Matthew 16, which we just mentioned, uh, where Jesus says, drop everything, take up your cross, follow me. Same chapter. There's this beautiful conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Very familiar. I want you to read it. I'll just paraphrase. And Jesus is, is talking to his disciples. He's got about a year of ministry ahead of him with these guys. And but he's, he's trying to get some things clear. He's like, okay, let's get all the cards on the table. He says, what's the scuttlebutt? What's the rumor? What's, what's the, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? And the disciples went, well, word on the street is, you are maybe John the Baptist, maybe you're Elijah, maybe you're Jeremiah, maybe you're just one of the prophets, they don't know. And Jesus is taking in the information, then he shifts the conversation slightly, he says, okay, that's what they say, what do you say? Who do you think that I am? Let's get that on the table. So, Simon, at this point, Simon Barjona, which means Simon, son of Jonah, is uh, in a rare moment of clarity, says the right thing. This might be the only time in recorded scripture where Peter says the right thing. And then a few minutes later, uh, Jesus calls him Satan and says, get behind me. So, it, you know, it doesn't, goes off the rails quickly. But let's focus on the positive here. Glass half full. Uh, Peter nails it, sticks the landing, says, you're the son of God. You're the Christ. I know this one. You are the Christ. You are the Savior. Jesus rings a little bell. Winner, winner. Chicken dinner. Says you are correct. But he doesn't stop there. Something beautiful happens. And it's very important. That's why we're closing on this moment today. He says, okay, you didn't, you didn't realize this on your own. This is something that God revealed to you. It had to be. The only way we really see Jesus clearly is because the Holy Spirit allows us to see Jesus clearly. Revelation doesn't come from a clever argument. It comes from seeing clearly in a way that only the Holy Spirit can do. Removes the veil. And we're able to see Jesus clearly. And he says, that happened for you. And because that happened for you, I'm changing your name. In that moment, he says, you're no longer Simon Barjona, you're now Peter. Peter means rock. And, and he says, upon this rock, this revelation, this encounter that you just had, I'm going to build, he uses this word for the first time, first time in, in, in the New Testament this word is brought up, I'm going to build my church. Ecclesia, called out ones. I'm going to build my community upon a revelation of who I truly am. So Jesus says that, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is Jesus doing that? He's building us. He's building up us, his body, 
His church, His called out ones, His community. He's building us up. So He says, come with Me. Walk with Me. Work with Me. Do what I'm doing. What's He doing? He's building us up. So the domino effect here is we see Jesus clearly. And in seeing Jesus clearly, we gain new identity. We discover who we are and what we're about. We're not pulling identity from what we do or what we have done or haven't done. We're pulling identity from the source, the one who made us. Jesus tells me who I am. Not the world. Not social media. Not even my family and friends. Jesus tells me who I am. I find that in Him. And then when I find my identity in Him, I also find purpose and meaning in Him to where I'm part of something that is way bigger than just my 9 to 5. I'm part of something that is eternal, that is actually helping people experience God forever. One last Scripture. Ephesians 4, 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects, into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body is being fitted and held together, together, by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, for the growth of the body, for the building up of itself in love. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul says this is what we're made to do And it's exactly the same thing that Jesus tells his disciples, this is what I'm doing. This is what we're about. We are building each other up. So suddenly, the goal shifts. Suddenly, we start to get the right instructions. We're playing pitfall and no longer is about just do you and run as far as you can doing you. No, it's, it's about the treasure. And it's about what the treasure does within us. We have this treasure, and what this treasure does within us is it begins to move us beyond just a life of fruitless searches, a life consumed by self, a life enamored with my own elevation and advancement and enlightenment, me, 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 and suddenly... It's about we. In fact, the most important part of Jesus' invitation is this phrase. Come to me. Walk with me. Work with me. Be yoked with me. It is moving beyond. I must decrease. He must increase. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And what is, if it's really all about Jesus and it's really about His life and me, what's Jesus all about? He's all about others. No greater love has anyone than this than to lay down their life for for their friends, for others. Is a life consumed with, preoccupied with, loving, serving, and building others up. You want to experience true life, true fulfillment, you find it only in Christ, and that true fulfillment exercises itself. It manifests itself. The only thing that counts is is faith 
the finished work of Jesus expressing itself through love for others in our lives. That's where the magic happens. That's where fulfillment, joy come from. It is no accident that this is an incredibly depressed, sad, demoralized generation. And it also happens to be a generation that is most discontent and disconnected with the community of faith. That is not coincidence. Life is made for greater things than just my own personal advancement. I am meant for, built for, designed for something so much greater. I am part of the body of Christ. He is the head. I'm not. I am part of the body. And then my calling is to celebrate, revel in that, enjoy that, live life in that, but also, in the meantime, build others up in that pursuit. That's the goal.